Welcome everyone to POV Crypto. I'm David Hoffman here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good, man. We just had an awesome podcast with the one and only Anthony Pompliano, Pomp on Twitter. We talked about so much stuff. David, you want to kind of jump into the details? Yeah, absolutely. We go down the list of questions about the various funding mechanisms found in cryptocurrency. Uh, how do funds actually gain exposure to the industry? Do they buy Bitcoin? Do they buy Ethereum? Do they buy ERC-20 tokens or do they invest in equity? Um, we talk about Ethereum as a store of value. Uh, we talk about um, tokenized real estate. We talk about uh, the different uh, worlds of development from Silicon Valley to uh, you know people from the East. Uh, a whole range of topics all kind of centered around what investment and growth of projects looks like in the space. Pomp is such a nice guy and he is just constantly hustling for his brand. At the end of the podcast, he actually drops um, some of his Twitter secrets as well. So for all of you aspiring Twitter influencers, uh, Pomp has some tips for you at the end of this podcast. But in general, Pomp, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, it was great getting to meet him and getting to talk to him for 50 minutes here. Want to take a moment to show the Bitcoin 2019 conference. It's going to be at the end of June, June 25th and 26th in San Francisco. BTC only going to be an absolutely fantastic event. We already have amazing speakers and amazing venue. Use code POV15 to get 25% off. Don't ask me why it's POV15 instead of 25, but POV15. Uh, I want to show the show. Please rate and review the show. We are still under 50, so we're still going to be asking for those ratings. Uh, find the show on Twitter at POV CryptoPod. You can find me, Christian, on Twitter at CK underscore Snarks. David? You can find me at Trustless State, both on Twitter and on Medium. And without further ado, let's get right into it. Anthony Pompliano, welcome to POV Crypto. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Anthony, I've been a big fan of you and your efforts in kind of reaching out the cryptocurrency network, the cryptocurrency virus, you know, growing growing the ecosystem. So I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit about your efforts in getting more and more people off of zero. Can you kind of tell our audience what that means and how that's going? Yeah, so there's two aspects. Um, I think one's educational, one's financial. Um, my thought, uh, for a long time has been that there's so many smart people in uh, the Bitcoin and crypto industry, but not that many people are focused on taking these complex ideas and explaining them in very simple terms to uh, a large audience or kind of the mass audience. Uh, so I started out doing that um, and frankly didn't know if I was doing a good job or not, but people seem to continue to kind of flock to it. Uh, so, so just kept doing it. Um, and then as uh, my partners and I decided to really go and raise institutional capital and start deploying it uh, across the ecosystem, uh, we knew that we were going to have to take that kind of simple language of describing these complex ideas and tailor it to uh, the institutional audience, right? Kind of endowments, pensions, sovereign wealth, and foundations. And uh, the whole idea of get off zero is, look, Bitcoin specifically has been the best performing asset over the last 10 years. It's a non-correlated asymmetric return profile asset. It's like the holy grail of portfolio construction and, and uh, asset management. I can't tell you if an institution should have 10 basis points, 100 basis points, 200 basis points, or 50. 
but I know that having zero is the wrong number. And so get off zero, right? Get some kind of exposure, whether it's one basis point or a hundred, we got to get you off zero. You got to get some skin in the game. You have to start paying attention to this asset class and you got to go from there. Pomp, thanks again for coming on. That was a fantastic explanation. This is Christian. Um, so kind of digging into that a little bit more, I know that you recently had some really exciting news about um, endowments joining onto your fund and, uh, and raising a pretty big round. Um, just kind of curious, what are those conversations like? How, like when you're in these meetings, how much do, you know, people who are running, you know, a massive endowment already know about Bitcoin? You know, what are those conversations like? Yeah, so uh, last year we actually raised a, a $40 million venture capital fund. Uh, we didn't announce it till this year. So kind of contrary to our normal approach of being overly transparent and kind of uh, you know publicly bullish, uh, we waited. We made about 14 investments before we uh, we announced it. And everyone um, really jumped on the idea that we uh, the fund is anchored by two public pensions. So the first two public pension funds to invest in the crypto industry uh, did over 50% of our fund. Uh, we also have an endowment, a hospital system, an insurance company, uh, and a foundation. And really, the, the, the conversation is twofold with them. One is, look, this is innovative technology. That's all we're talking about, right, is we're moving to a digital world. This is innovative technology where a ton of really smart entrepreneurs are starting to build companies, and you want to own pieces or equity of those companies. And the second is this asset class, many of the investment opportunities available have proven so far to date to have been non-correlated asymmetric return assets and you need exposure to it. And so we don't think they should go and put a ton of money in, but you gotta get some exposure, you gotta get off zero. And I think the response from uh, the pensions and also from the endowment hospital system insurance company uh, was very similar, right? It's kind of threefold. One is is this actually real technology? Okay, yes, that checks out. Two, are there actually really smart, uh, successful entrepreneurs running into the space to build companies? Okay, that checks out. And then three is uh, more of the risk management question. What's the headline risk of me doing this, right? Is it possible that the money could get stolen? Is this stuff legal? Right? All of that type of stuff that goes through the due diligence period, um, I think is, uh, is definitely rational questions. And so once we can answer those three questions, I think that uh, they get really excited and obviously we got a couple of them across the finish line. Hopefully there'll be many, many more where, uh, where they came from. So uh, you, you brought up a lot of different aspects, which, which all makes sense, especially in kind of like early stage investing, people that are trying to allocate to what you described as a highly, uh, a highly uncorrelated asset that's performed extremely well. But like, in on bitcoin twitter on crypto twitter people talk about like economics austrian economics sound money all this kind of stuff do people care about that in the institutional side of things you, you have to remember that um professional investors right the the uh permanent capital uh allocators they don't give a shit about your asset right whether it's a public equity whether it's a, a private investment opportunity whether it's bitcoin a currency etc they're looking for two things. They're looking for returns, and they do it in a very unemotional way. And they're also looking to partner with institutional fund managers that they can trust, right? So when they look at the crypto space, you can walk in and tell them all day long that you know Bitcoin is better money, Bitcoin is going to uh, become the global reserve currency, we're gonna decentralize the world, we're gonna burn Wall Street, right? All these things that are qualitative arguments at the end of the day, it all comes back to the same thing. If I'm an institutional investor and I give you my money, are you going to give me back more money than I gave you? And are you going to do it with an attractive risk return profile? 
And so being able to convince them of that um, and really speak in their language of portfolio construction uh, is incredibly important uh, in order to unlock those dollars. And, and, and frankly, uh, my partner, Mark Yusko, gets a ton of credit. He's been doing this for 15, 20 years and, uh, and knew exactly how to walk in and describe all the things that the three of us are probably excited about in crypto. He was able to say to them, this is what this means in your language. And, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to do that more and more moving here in the future. So Bitcoin has this very easy to explain value proposition to where, you know, even a lot of the, you know, the traditional investment finance world can really understand it. The finite supply in a global world currency is, is a huge value proposition. As somebody, Christian here is more in the Bitcoin side of things and I'm more on the Ethereum side of things. And the when I hear people in the Ethereum world talk about you, they get a little bit frustrated that you don't talk about Ethereum as much as they would hope. Um, so how do you feel about Ethereum as a store of value proposition? Yeah, so I, I look at it less as Ethereum has to be a store of value or a medium of exchange or a utility or, or one other thing, right? It's really hard to put these assets in a single bucket. And so I look at it more kind of holistically um, or, or kind of from a 10,000 foot view. And uh, I was recently telling somebody that, you know, with Ethereum, you can't deny the value creation, right? There was a project uh, that somebody or a group of people built and it created billions of dollars worth of value. And that's, and that's real value creation that was captured by a whole host of different people. So that's one. Two is, uh, I think it's Nolan, the director of research at the Coindesk said to me one time, you know, the ERC-20 standard shook the world, right? This idea that a single protocol standard was able to unleash billions of dollars of capital raised. This idea of smart contracts just absolutely thrust into the forefront of you know, an entire generation's mind, it sounds ridiculous, but that's what happened. And now all of a sudden you have the DeFi movement and you've got all of these other aspects that are being built on top of what ended up being this kind of virtual machine or, or the smart contracts. I think that you would be dumb to say that that stuff's not real, right? I mean, look, if you look at the CDPs with Maker and Die and stuff, right? It's just, you go down the line and you see all of this value being created. Now, the big question, and, and this is for both Bitcoin, Ethereum, any of these protocols, is which one's going to be the most scalable, right? Can the things being built on Ethereum today, can they actually be built on, in a scalable way on top of Bitcoin's network? Can the things being built on top of Bitcoin be built actually on top of Ethereum better? Is there some third protocol that we don't know of yet or that's out there that it doesn't get as much attention that's actually going to be the scalable solution? There's a whole bunch of unknowns that we have to be realistic about. Um, you know, saying, look, we don't know yet. And we've got to figure this stuff out to really know who the winners are going to be. Um, but, but I think that uh, just because I use Bitcoin as um, the kind of the most notable uh, thing that I reference in tweets or when I write, it doesn't mean that I don't see the value of Ethereum. It's just that the community that I'm speaking to, that institutional community, Bitcoin is light years ahead in terms of like uh, awareness and name brand. And so when I say Bitcoin, a lot of times I actually mean crypto, but Bitcoin happens to be the leader. And so I think that there are, um, you know, just speaking to that audience is really important. And uh, it's kind of, you know, I'll say this without, and I don't mean this to offend anybody, but it's kind of like when you talk to somebody of an older generation, they think every cell phone's an iPhone, right? Like that, that happens a little bit. Right. And so um, there is, you know, Bitcoin is the phone that they know. Right. Or I'm sorry, it's not the phone, uh, is the asset that they know. And so I use Bitcoin because that's the one that's recognizable. But I think that uh, sometimes Bitcoin is interchangeable in those sentences with Ether or something else. Um, it's just Bitcoin's the, the, the leader right now. 
So, uh, Pomp, again, uh, just to give you a little bit more background on this podcast, uh, POV Crypto is really about like Bitcoin, me versus Ethereum, David. So a lot of people like this show because we kind of go head to head and we have a few uh, few debates. We keep it interesting. Um, Perfect. But talking about Bitcoin being light years ahead, can you dig a little bit more into that? Like from an institutional perspective, like are these institutional, you know, these pensions, uh, these these funds, these uh, endowments, are they interested in Ethereum? Do you do they see Ethereum specifically as something um, that, you know, is a good investment for them or has a good risk to reward uh, ratio? This is just my personal perspective and complete estimate. Uh, I'll try to be educated as I can. More than 50% of the institutional investors I talk to have no clue what Ethereum is, right? Meaning that they know Bitcoin and they know blockchain. They couldn't, they couldn't come up with the word Ethereum on their own. Now, they're usually the least educated on the space, obviously, right? So they're kind of going, they're the ones who have read some headlines. Maybe somebody's trying to explain to them what Bitcoin or a blockchain is, but they really haven't done the work to start to look into the space, then I would say there's about 25% of people who they know Bitcoin, they know Ethereum, usually they know like Ripple or XRP, right? And they know what a blockchain is. So they kind of know, again, what's in the headlines a lot, what do a lot of people talk about? But I would say that they have done a little bit of work, but still aren't very high up on the education curve. Then there's 25% of people that I talk to, super educated. They could actually articulate probably better than the three of us, the difference between Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the value prop for each, right? These are the people who, um, we joke all the time that we walk into the institutional meetings. It's without fail, there's always some analyst or associate or principal under the age of 30 that when I'm walking out of the room, kind of nudges me and goes, hey man, I follow you on Twitter. Hey man, I listen to the podcast. Hey man, like, like I'm one of you guys. Right. And, and it's pretty cool to see how these crypto enthusiasts, they don't, we don't have to infiltrate the institutional community. There's already crypto enthusiasts inside of these institutions. And today, their principals, their analysts, their associates, tomorrow, they're going to be the heads of the private division. Right. And in 20 years or 15 years, they're going to be the CIOs. And so if we think that this stuff is not going to get the attention of institutions over a long period of time. We're crazy because it's those crypto enthusiasts, whether they're Bitcoin maximalists and Ethereum maximalists, they think everything has value. Like they're going to continue to stay in the institutional world, move up the ranks, and eventually they're going to start allocating big dollars to this space. And you know, we we just look at it as it's a patience game, right? It's long-term patience uh, with short-term urgency. And so I think that's really kind of how people are viewing the difference between Bitcoin, Ethereum, blockchain, et cetera, right now. So when you talk about these uh, investment entities who are, are looking to throw in a f at least a handful of basis points into crypto, how, how do you separate it between like investing in base layer currencies like Bitcoin or Ether and then also tokens like maybe MKR or some, some ERC-20 token and then also investing in equity in companies or startups? Uh, so do you provide any sort of guidance or advice for these uh, institutions that don't really know much on how to kind of go about balancing a portfolio based on these kind of investments? Yeah, so a couple of thoughts here. One is, let, let, let me just give kind of a point of reference, right? So there's a, there's a very large uh, institutional investor. They manage over $100 billion. There's a gentleman, a little bit older. I walked in the room. Uh, it was Mark, myself, uh, and a guy, Bill Deichler, who works with us. And uh, th this gentleman says to us, I believe that this blockchain stuff is going to be the greatest wealth creation event in our lifetime. And I, I lit up. I was like, oh, here we go, right? Like, this dude's a believer. 
second question, what's a blockchain, right? Like, so just to give you a sense of like, there's some conversations that literally start off there. There's a second conversation uh, that I recently had uh, with a uh, CIO at an endowment. And one of the first two questions that he asked me was, isn't all this stuff illegal? Right. So, so you get kind of the very early stages of people trying to figure this stuff out all the way to uh, there's people who, you know, whether it's Cambridge, uh, who came out with this big paper, uh, or, or there's a couple of people who work at different institutions that are super up the curve. They've already talked to a bunch of managers and they get it. Right. So, so you got to remember that you've got kind of a very wide variety. Now, what do we talk to them about? Part of the story is explaining to them the different opportunities, right? So you just laid out, you can get direct exposure to what we call like the, the large caps, right? The blue chip cryptos, the Bitcoins, the Ethereums. You can get exposure to beta uh, market, right? So basically put your money in an index and I'll just look, what, take whatever the crypto industry gives you. You can get direct exposure to all of the smaller caps, right? The kind of more nuanced where you're almost picking stocks, if you will. You're picking tokens that are going to appreciate for certain reasons. And then you can invest in equity. Most of these investors, if you say to them, you should buy Bitcoin or Ethereum, the next question they have is, what bucket of capital would that come out? Does that come out of my equity bucket, like my venture bucket? Does that come out of my uh, public markets, my cash bucket, my inflation hedge bucket? Like, where do I take that money from? And how do I think about it in my portfolio? So it's a little difficult for them to, to do that. Second then becomes, how do they think about custody, about regulation, about taxes, about getting in and out of large positions, right? There's a lot of challenges there. And so they're much more likely just to give that money to a fund manager, right? Remember, they're a capital allocator. Let me go find a fund manager that I trust. I'll do diligence on the fund and on the manager. I'll give them the money and then they go and they buy the assets, right? So they're willing to pay to have that ability for a kind of efficiency. That's what happens on the liquid token side. We tend to tell them, Blue chip stocks, right? So you go with the Bitcoins and Ethereums with a direct exposure to a manager, or you go index. They don't understand the differences between what DAI and MKR and you know XRP are, right? And so, so you're kind of asking them to do too much work uh, as stage one. We think we can eventually get them there, but in the beginning days is just too difficult. The second piece is they understand equity. The idea that I own equity in a business where there's governance, there's recourse, there's ownership. I know how I monetize the investment by going public, by being acquired. There's cash flow. I can value it. All of this stuff makes a ton of sense to them. And they already have a venture capital bucket, right? They've already allocated capital to venture capital. So we tend to say to them, and the reason why we set up our first fund the way we did, where it's about 85% direct investing, 15% liquid crypto, is you should have equity and you should have some exposure to the liquid cryptos. We think that that uh, percentage difference, the 85-15, really allows them to have about all of, almost all of the money into equity that they understand. They, they understand where that capital comes from and they understand it's going to get monetized, but we still get them some of that exposure to the liquid market because over time, we hope that they're going to get more and more exposure to the liquid market and eventually maybe it could be even 50-50 down the road. So what you're saying right now is that at least with the big money, they're actually more interested in buying crypto businesses and owning equity and funding these crypto startups than they actually are of owning the 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 hard asset. Um, is that is that correct? Yes. So for sure. And and here's the way to think about this, right? So I think that every fund, regardless if you're in crypto or not, should have Bitcoin in the in the portfolio. It's a non-correlated asymmetric return. So whether you're a macro hedge fund, you're a traditional venture capital fund, you're a crypto fund, or you're literally you know a real estate fund, you should have 
some percentage, whether it's two basis points, five, 10, whatever, you should have some exposure to Bitcoin. Now, with that said, I think that these funds, what they're looking at is, okay, you tell me to buy Bitcoin, right? I'm not going to go put a large amount of capital into Bitcoin. And honestly, if you look back over time, if you had invested in the seed or the series A of Coinbase, Kraken, Binance, Bitmain, et cetera, you would have outperformed the financial return if, of putting just money in Bitcoin during that same time period. So the appreciation of Bitcoin was less than the equity in those companies when those rounds were raised. Now, there's only a couple of companies that you're going to get that appreciation, right? There's only a couple of companies that end up being worth multiple billions of dollars, but they're trying to find managers who can find those companies because they understand the equity can be valuable in the future. Do you think that that's better than just buying Bitcoin personally? I mean, look, from my standpoint, I think that uh, you should never be 100% all in just one asset. Right. So if you said to me, how do I think about crypto investing in general? Uh, it, it, the the friggin' accreditation laws in this country are horrible. And so that makes it super difficult to do this. But I do think that an investor should have exposure to both the public and private market, right? So they own equity in some of these businesses and also have exposure to the public markets. I tend personally to be overweight on Bitcoin in the public markets. Um, and, and on the equity in the private markets. But I think that building out a kind of diversified portfolio across this industry is not only uh, prudent, but it's actually going to be advantageous from a financial return perspective over a long period of time. Pomp, you mentioned a little bit about uh, to uh, real estate, and I know you are fascinated by tokenized real estate. I was wondering if you could give uh, me and Christian and our audience a little intro as to what you see in the world of tokenized real estate, because I think you pay attention to it more than the average person. Yeah, so my, my core thesis uh, very early on in, in crypto back in 2016, when I really started doing a lot of work here, was every single stock, bond, currency, and commodity was going to be digital. Right. And the idea of being digital is today the US dollar is a digital currency, right? It's 93% of it's not in physical paper or coins. Um, Bitcoin is a digital currency. Some would argue Ethereum is a digital currency, etc. All that means is we're moving to a digital world, right? So we were an analog world where paper assets and physical assets were dominant. We went to an electronic world where we traded ones and zeros on computers, but those just represented the analog assets, right? We still had multi-day multi settlement times in order for those physical assets to trade hands or to settle. Now, when we go to a digital world, there's near instantaneous settlement. And so we need digitally native assets, assets that are created in the digital world. They exist in the digital world. They're transacted in the digital world. But in order to have those digital assets, right, you guys know this, you have to have triple entry accounting, right? They're just computer files. And to prevent the double spend problem, duplicating the files, et cetera. And so really the way that I talk to institutional investors is I say, look, we're moving to a digital world. We need three things. The three core concepts of crypto are digitally native assets, digitally native accounting, digitally native contracts. Without those three things, none of this works. We need those three things. Now, what is that in crypto terms? That means we need digital assets, we need blockchain, and we need some sort of smart contracts to make all this thing work. I just look at it as we are building a world for machines and algorithms, not for humans. And so that's what this digital world persists, right, or, or allows. 
Now around real estate specifically, look, we just uh, um, uh, participated in a financing for uh, Mike Cagney's new company figure, right? And Mike is essentially offering home equity loans in less than five days. He's doing it on a blockchain uh, that he's built and uh, he, it's exploded. And he's working with you know very large uh, financial services companies. And I think that what you're seeing is there is efficiency that is gained by doing things from the non-digital world on blockchains or in this digital world. I think that every asset, every stock, bond, currency, and commodity will be digitized in the future. The question is who does it on what time frame, and can you know as investors, can we find those founders to partner with them and help them do it faster? So, Pomp, how quickly do you think it's going or how long do you think it's going to take for stocks like Apple, Facebook, Google, um, you know, you're running the mill NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange stocks to be traded 24 seven on some sort of trustless third party or sorry, trustless um, triple accounting system? Yes. Yeah, so, and so also, pretty- sorry, before you answer that question, uh, so there are also ways for a, a value of a stock to be represented on Ethereum without actually the stock being there. So as like a, 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 a derivative or a synthetic yep. asset. And does that count in your thesis or do you think there will actually be an ERC-20 version of Apple stock on, on Ethereum or some equivalent on Bitcoin? Great, great question. So, so I actually was going to answer this in two parts, and you just nailed the second part. So first part is uh, people want this, right? I know uh, of multiple exchanges in China uh, that I will not name that are doing hundreds of millions of dollars in daily volume, and the number one most popular products or the top products are tokenized U.S. stocks. So basically, somebody takes uh, Apple stock, they put it into a trust, and they tokenize the ownership of the trust. And like an Apple token is trading on these exchanges, and each token is backed one-to-one to to the Apple stock that sits in the trust, right? Hundreds of millions of dollars of volume. These are the top-traded products. So people want this. And the reason is they're either trying to avoid capital controls. They don't have access to the U.S. stock market. You know, all these different reasons. I look at that and I say, that's the proxy. That's the hack right now of how we get Apple stock into the tokenized world. And it's obvious people want that. Now, I go to the extreme view of what's the steady state. I I wrote a thing, I think it was uh, probably about a year ago now, maybe a little less than a year ago, that said, I went on a limb and I said, I think that the SEC and other regulators are going to mandate the tokenization of every single publicly traded company. And here's why. If the three of us are public investors and we go to make a trade and we do something that's illegal, right? Or in the private market. And let's say I take a red D filing and I trade it to one of you and you're unaccredited. We just broke the law, right? We broke the regulation. They spent a lot of time, money, and resources to figure out who we are, what we did, what rule we broke, build the case, and then enforce on us. In the tokenized world, my wallet, my digital wallet is KYC, AML, and investor verified. So is yours, right? And then that token has who issued it, when, under what regulation, how long ago, what jurisdiction, all that stuff. And so when I go to make that trade from an accredited investor with a Reg D filing to an unaccredited investor, the code, which understands what the regulation is, realizes this is a non-compliant trade about to happen, and it rejects the trade. What it does is it takes regulators from being reactive and turns them into being proactive. It saves them a ton of time, money, and resources, and it also makes the overall system more compliant. And so I think that regulators eventually, just like they did with XML uh, or Edgar, they're going to mandate this stuff to happen. 
I don't know how long it's going to take, right? That's the big question is, is this two years away? Is this 10 years away? I have no clue, but I think it's definitely going to happen. And I think that probably before you and I die, we will absolutely hold every stock, bond, currency, and commodity in some sort of digital wallet. And there will be no separation from our bank accounts and our brokerage accounts. It's all going to be built on the same platform in a single wallet. Do you think that like these proxy derivatives that are trading in China, tr- trading in other kind of like tokenized uh, environments, do they kind of force the U.S.'s hand? Like how does the U.S. kind of manage that that kind of quote unquote threat or breaking of their laws? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Right. To, to be completely honest, is the short answer. Um, I, I think that there's an element of the U.S. Uh, doesn't care as much what happens with non-U.S. citizens trading in not the U.S., Right. Uh, with that said, though, they definitely care about competition. Right. So, is there a world where um, U.S. says, "Oh, wow, there's a bunch of trading and and um, kind of economic activity that's happening outside the U.S. and if we go ahead and we mandate the tokenization, that actually can now shift to U.S.-based companies, U.S.-based markets, etc." I, I tend to think that there's like that's the tertiary or kind of secondary type of uh, process. The, the big thing really is U.S. regulators want to encourage innovation and protect the market participants, right? That, that's essentially what they're mandated with. And so I think that they're doing that. The exciting thing for most people in crypto is this is a global system, right? For the first time ever, what we are seeing is we are seeing a quote unquote free market at play where jurisdictions are competing with each other, assets are competing with each other, issuers, companies. We're, it's just all this war of attrition. We don't know who's going to win yet, but I don't think that the U.S. has the dominant position that it once had. I don't think that the U.S. is not number one, but I do think that what we're seeing is that competition is actually creating a more even playing field, and it's pretty fascinating to watch this all play out. In that same vein, something you said a while ago was about having a KYC wallet in order to purchase, you know, U.S. securities that are publicly available. To me, that kind of goes against the ethos of cryptocurrency because I don't really want my name to be associated with just one wallet. And it kind of links my identity to some funds that I kind of just want linked to a private key and a private key alone. Uh, and so I would, what do you think about more and more U.S. companies maybe going the Binance route and selling some sort of BNB token, which is totally a security. But, you know, as regulations get more clear and, and companies get more uh, understanding of what is possible with Ethereum and, and the blockchain world, do you see more and more companies kind of shifting away from the uh, issuing registered securities and kind of going in and selling some sort of uh, value accrual token on a blockchain that is not necessarily needing to be KYC'd? Yeah, so a couple of things you hit on there. One is uh, if you want to own a security, you're going to have to have a KYC AML wallet. Now, what you're talking about is the separation between a security and let's say currencies, right? So if you want to hold Bitcoin, you may not have to have a KYC AML wallet. Actually, I would argue that you don't have to in some jurisdictions, right? In some companies. And so what you would choose to do in that case is you say, look, if I want to hold securities, I'm going to hold those in my KYC AML wallet. If I want to hold my Bitcoin, I'm going to hold that in a wallet that isn't KYC AML, right? So I think that there would be some separation. Now you're choosing to make that separation, even though each wallet could hold everything, you're basically uh, kind of uh, separating those assets based on the, your preference and what you want to be achieve, you know, what you're trying to achieve. 
Now, in terms of uh, BNB and Binance, look, I, I think it's no secret that uh, I'm fascinated with Binance. I think that CZ is one of the best executors in the space. Um, you know, I, I've uh, brought them on the podcast, spent time with them, uh, incredibly impressed. And, and part of it is, uh, look, they're executing as a business. He scaled really quickly. You know, the financial results speak for themselves. The other part is, uh, I, I really think the BNB model is interesting. Right. You know, you could imagine a world where if he actually decentralizes the company and those equity investors or equity shareholders really don't own anything, but all of the value accrual happens to that token, uh, it, it's new. Right. It, it looks a little different than we would say like traditional equities. And if he's doing it in a way where uh, he's regulatory compliant in the jurisdictions he's in, look, if I'm him, I'm probably asking myself, why go to the U.S.? Right. Why would I operate within the United States if they're going to have the hardest, the harshest rules? If I don't need to be there, maybe I don't need to go there, right? And so I think that that is, um, you know, again, it just begs a lot of complex questions that don't have very simple answers. I think that's part of the excitement of crypto is that, uh, you know, the three of us can sit here and we can pontificate on all of these kind of multivariate problems. Uh, but at the same time, we're watching a dude you know, with a team of 400 people in less than 18 months, build a business that made over $500 million in profit. That's incredible. And he's doing it with a brand new model that a lot of people are benefiting from. I think, you know, look, I think in the last three or four weeks, B&B has gone up like 200%. And it's just what, what other assets are doing stuff like that, right? It's just, it, it is really, really fascinating to watch. And now the, the caveat or the disclaimer to all of this, it could all go to zero. Right. None of this is guaranteed to be successful. It's all experimental. We're literally watching this industry be built. And so it's super exciting. I get fired up about it. And I think that, you know, these types of questions everyone should be asking and should be learning from those on the front lines that are literally experimenting with new models. So, Pomp, uh, you kind of touched on a few things that I think are really interesting here. And the major theme that I wanted to kind of investigate further is this idea of regulatory arbitrage. So personally for me, as a Bitcoiner, I see regulatory arbitrage as being one of Bitcoin's strongest weapons. Um, one, one nation state can make it illegal, but you can host the servers or develop anywhere else in the world and it doesn't really make a difference to the protocol. Like, How do you see regulatory arbitrage fitting into this space? And how do you, seeing, you, know, how do you see investors in the U.S. kind of uh, you know, taking advantage of that or being hurt by uh, the fact that the U.S. is kind of a difficult place for these projects to, um, to get built? The market's going to decide, man. <laughs> right? The the uh, I think what we're seeing is um, I'm fascinated by this idea that companies used to be built in the United States. They'd saturate the U.S. They'd scale really fast in the U.S. and then they would permeate out into international markets. Right? Like the international expansion was an afterthought. Well, now that more people are on the internet, there's much more connectivity to smartphones, right? There's much larger populations internationally. You actually can uh, grow a business faster by being outside the U.S. than inside the U.S. in some cases, right? And so I think that that regulation arbitrage, it's less about the arbitrage and it's more about if you're an entrepreneur, what's the best thing for your business? Where's the most users with the most connectivity that want your product or service? And how do you go build that business in the right jurisdiction, right? And so a lot of people, I think uh, there's like this negative connotation to arbitra uh, reg regulation arbitrage of like, I'm running away from a, a regulatory uh, jurisdiction. Instead, I look at it as uh, people are running to the jurisdiction that is the most entrepreneurship friendly. 
And therefore, if you are one of the countries that is not the beneficiary of that movement, you're going to be either forced to be okay with losing entrepreneurs and companies, or you're going to have to become more competitive in that, uh, in that arena and hopefully solicit or recruit some of those founders to stay rather than leave. Is the U.S. in trouble? I don't think the U.S. is in trouble, right? A, a lot of this like, oh, the U.S. regulatory environment is, uh, is you know, too harsh, all that stuff is like quite overblown. I think that the U.S. regulators have done a fantastic job of actually uh, being pretty even-handed, right? Look at what places like China, et cetera, did where they banned everything, then they unbanned it, then they banned it again. There was, just a, there was way too much uncertainty and kind of chaos and thrash to make it easy to build a company there. In the U.S., they basically took the stance of, we have rules. Those rules apply to this just like everything else. Now, there's a lot of questions around, you know, the big one was for a while was, you know, is Ethereum a security or not? Could it have been a security and, and then evolved to not be a security? I think that that type of stuff uh, eventually gets figured out. And the U.S. would have to be so badly jacked up to get people to leave the U.S. and move to international markets that I think we're pretty far away from that happening. Because uh, at the end of the day, Silicon Valley is probably still one of the best places in the world to build companies. And that comes from the combination of talent, uh, capital, and also knowledge, right? Where else in the world could you start a company and turn around and find 10 other entrepreneurs who have built multi, you know, tens of billions of dollars of enterprise value? Not very many places, right? And so that's the type of stuff that will keep Silicon Valley ahead for, for a very long time. Um, but look, it, you know, Every great uh, kingdom falls. And so let's make sure that, uh, that that doesn't happen in the U.S. Can you speak to any kind of quality? I, I know you said that Silicon Valley is the best. How do you feel about other developers from other countries? We know, we know China's hot on crypto. We know South Korea's hot on crypto. Can you comment on the quality of developers from those regions? Yeah, so uh, I'll answer this in kind of a backwards way of that. I actually think that having a team full of people from Silicon Valley is really bad. Right. I'm of the belief that diversity of thought, of culture, of experience, of uh, geography is, uh, is a huge benefit. And I'll give you, an ex you know, a pretty uh, extreme example. So if you and I are in Silicon Valley and we're two white dudes who want to go build companies, right? we have probably very similar experiences if we grew up in the U.S. Uh, and um, you know, went to school, went to college, et cetera. All of a sudden, if you look at uh, somebody who grew up in South Korea, not only do they come from a different world, but let's say something as cultural as like they just interact with digital assets from an early age, right? Digital assets and gaming and all this stuff has been huge in that culture for a very long time. Mobile payments, QR codes. They just grew up in a different environment, had a different relationship with technology than you or I. And so being able to incorporate that difference of opinion, experience, um, skill set, et cetera, uh, is really important because I think it makes the overall team more effective. Now, when you get to the developers themselves, there's two aspects of quality, right? And I look at quality like, what are the skills? It's 2019. The internet exists. If you want to be a developer, you can learn how to do that stuff on the internet, right? And you can teach yourself. It's hard. I get it. But you can do anything you want. You can learn anything you want. And so I'm, I think that there's talented people everywhere. Um, the other aspect of quality, I think, is uh, U.S.-based companies who say, actually, hiring engineers in Silicon Valley is super expensive. And I can get somebody who is as good, if not better, in another country for a fifth of the cost, 
right? And so now all of a sudden you get this arbitrage of talent where people say, you and I can jump on Slack, we can jump on you know, Google Hangouts, we can operate just like any other team in the world can, but you happen to live in another country and if you're the CEO, you're, you know, or I'm the CEO, I'm paying you as an engineer, one fifth of what I would pay somebody who sits next to me in Silicon Valley. So I think that's really interesting and is only going to get better uh, and more interesting as uh, more people get on the internet, more people get educated and people, you know, kind of become more fond of this idea of remote work. Awesome. David and I both do a decent amount of remote work, uh, working in the crypto industry kind of uh, leads to that being something that's more okay. But I want to change the subject to um, Twitter. Twitter is something that you are you are a freaking magician at. You spend a lot of time. I have a ton of respect for your strategy. But I'm kind of curious, in general, like, what do you think people get wrong about Twitter? And how have you been able to leverage up your social capital using the platform? Yeah, so a couple of things. Uh, one, the perspective I come at it from is really important. I used to run um, a couple of pro- uh, product or growth teams at Facebook. And so I, I, I'm very familiar with kind of how the social networks work, uh, how the algorithms work at some of these companies. Um, and and uh, I also have uh, a bent for um, kind of marketing in general, right? When you're doing growth, you're kind of data-driven, et cetera. And so when it came to Twitter uh, about two, a little more than two years ago now, uh, I said, look, I, I, I want to grow this thing. And there was a couple of things that I knew for sure, right? And they're very simple things that anyone, once they hear this stuff, you just gotta kind of trust the process, if you will. But one of them is the more content you produce, the more distribution you get, the more distribution you get, the more followers and engagement you get, right? So a lot of people sit and they tweet one time a day and they're like, oh shit, why is nobody engaging with my content? Well, because you're not creating enough content. So you just got to create a ton of content in the beginning. What I did was I didn't know what to create. I didn't have anything to say. So I would go and look at headlines and I would literally tweet the news. So seven, eight, 10 times a day, I would just tweet out, this happened, this happened, this happened. And people started to follow the account because I was just tweeting the news, right? The second thing is the more you engage with the community, the more they engage back, right? People love having the idea that somebody's on the other side of that account. So if you see a lot of big accounts that have you know a million plus followers, they get almost no engagement. And the reason is because everyone knows that it's like their PR team tweeting for them, right? There's no point engaging with that tweet because nobody's there. Whereas me, I don't even, I think I got 190,000 followers and I can get thousands of favorites and retweets and all this stuff because people know that I will spend hours a day sitting there and actually engaging back. The third thing is Twitter was not built for the intellectuals. We all like to pretend to be in the intellectual Olympics, but the big thing is that Twitter was built as a, uh, distribution platform. You get 280 characters. The simpler the language and the easier that you can uh, communicate ideas, the more viral it goes, the more it's accepted, the more that it gets engaged with. And what that means is using simple words, using punctuation, using spacing, lists, like all of these things that make tweets easier to read are really, really important because what it does is it makes it easier for somebody to consume and engage with. And so if you look at my tweets, like it, it's no secret that I figured out the code, right? Like whether it comes to, you know, all caps saying breaking, when there's a story breaking, whether it's these lists, whether it's coming up with these stupid phrases, you know, like long Bitcoin short the bankers to get people rallied up. Like all of these things are very, very intentional because what they do is they are specifically used to engage a community and build a huge distribution pipe and to keep those people engaged for years, 
right? And so I think that's what we've done so far. Uh, and, and I'm always happy to kind of talk with people about how to do it because I think it's something you can learn and, and it's one of the best investments I've made for my career. Has it helped you? With, like, have people been following at Pomp uh, like that you've met with and have like secured some like hardcore investments or is that been something that has like made some like obvious dividends uh, in your core business? It, it, it's an inc- it's incredible the amount of serendipity, the luck, uh, the benefits that I get from uh, Twitter, right? And Twitter has now become all the writing I do, the podcast, all the, all the content I put out. Uh, th- there's a gentleman who uh, actually many people in crypto know who called me one day and he said, you know, look, I, I just want to talk to you about like what are, what are you doing? What, why are you doing all of this? And what I explained to him was, your resume is your thoughts. Right, that's the new resume. It's what do you put out on Twitter? What do you put on your podcast? What do you write it about? Somebody should be able to go through all that stuff and come out on the other end and be like, I get a sense of who this person is. And if you put out that stuff and you kind of are vulnerable to um, kind of the reception of it, what happens is it actually draws the right type of people to you, the right opportunities, the right business partners, the right you know partnerships uh, for us, the right founders. All that stuff gets drawn to us. And so it's a great way to provide value to the community and draw the right things to us. Now, the other thing I'll say, and this is more anecdotal, I walked into an endowment one time, uh, three guys in the room, one guy's a CIO, he's about 42 years old, is my guess, and uh, you know, shake the two guys' hands, they say hi, whatever. Third guy who's a CIO says, what's up, Pomp? Never met him before. And I was like, uh, and I'm like racking my brain, like, did, do I, did I meet you and forget you, you know, whatever. <laughs> and he's like, I listen to all the podcasts, follow you on Twitter from my burner account, right? Like, I'm all in. And he's a CIO at an endowment, but he's on Twitter. He's reading everything that you and I are reading. And that's not uncommon. There's a ton. The, the public pension CIOs, I, I don't even know how I'm supposed to say this, but the public pension CIOs are on Twitter, right? They see what I'm tweeting. Like they're paying attention because they're trying to learn just like you and I are. They're just not doing it under their own names. And so Twitter is a really, really powerful place. And I tell everyone like, the time that you invest in that platform will pay off dividends for years to come if you do it the right way. Uh, so let's talk about you and Chris Berniski. You and Chris Berniski <laughs> got into a little tussle on on Twitter, starting with uh, Eric and Chris thinking that you have a bunch of bots. Uh, and I could go both ways. Like you are a master of memes and viruses, and that's m- maybe what that looks like. Uh, can you walk us through kind of what happened on, on Twitter with uh, between you three? Yeah. So look, I, I, I've actually never talked to Chris Berninsky before. Uh, and all of a sudden people started texting me one day uh, and they were like, yo, why is this dude going so hard at you? And I was like, what do you guys mean? And uh, I got on Twitter and he, uh, there was a tweet that I had tweeted about Kroger and there was so much, he was so highly engaged with that he was accusing me of having bots that engaged with my tweets. And I'm never one to back down from anyone. And so if you're going to call me out in public, I'm going to come firing right back. And I literally said to him, you got to be kidding me, right? You're, you're basically accusing the hundreds of thousands of people that care about this stuff and want to learn of being fake, right? It's one thing if you, you know, you can accuse me a lot of things, but accusing the community of being full of bots is one just intellectually dishonest. And I thought, frankly, it was uh, beneath him, right? It's just, well, why, why do that? Why engage in that? And so uh, obviously then it spirals out of control. Everyone jumps in with their opinion. You get the uh, you know, kind of the Twitter court comes out. And, uh, and my whole take was, look, man, 
I'm happy to debate you on ideas, right? I, I, uh, I think that he's been wrong on almost pretty much everything that he's come up with uh, when it comes to valuation methodology, uh, when it comes to the fat protocol thesis. Um, you know, li literally at one point he said that you'd be an idiot if you bought equities instead of bought tokens and then the market crashed 90%. Like I could go on for days. And so it's just, I have a very short kind of uh, temper or, um, or patience when people want to kind of throw rocks at each other. Right. I, most people know me on Twitter as, you know, one of the nicest guys, literally when people, you know, say all this negative stuff, I literally just like their tweets. Right. I say, Hey, hope you're having a great day. Like I, I'm not one to kind of get any spats, but you know, as I tell, uh, as I tell our team, I said, look, if you're going to bring the heat, I'm going to come over the top with so much fire. You're going to want to leave Twitter. Right. Cause it's just, I, I just have no patience for that stuff. And especially coming from a guy who, uh, who's probably been more wrong than he's been right. Uh, and then I challenged him to a debate. And he, uh, he agreed uh, to a live debate. And then uh, when it came time to, to show up, we started coordinating and he backed out. And so, uh, you know, if you're, gonna, if you're going to uh, kind of come at me publicly and then you're going to, uh, you know, kind of crawl away in private and say, oh, sorry, I didn't mean all that. Well, the damage is already kind of done. And, and so uh, I'm happy to debate him wherever he wants. And as I said on Twitter, the, uh, the quote unquote bots, I'm sure will all tune into the live stream. It's kind of funny. I'm actually going to see Chris Berniski today at the OKCoin offices here in San Francisco. So I'll have to let him know that we spoke and he owes you a debate. Invite yeah, him on the listen, podcast. We can have it here. Listen, by, by, by the way, I, I would happily do it, right? And, and, and part of this, again, is the crypto community needs to hold each other accountable. And so that behavior is unacceptable, right? The, the attacking of each other over things that don't matter is unacceptable. And there's plenty of people, I think, who's, who saw that and literally said, what, what, what is this? Is this just something like some bear market stuff, right? We, we have way too many other problems that are uh, facing us to have this like infighting over inconsequential stuff. Um, and, and so, you know, uh, look, he, he may not be happy that I'm saying this, but what I'm saying, you know, I believe to be the truth. And I think that, um, you know, we're all better than that. And, and we just should focus on other things. If uh, we get Chris Berniski to approve, would you back come back on POV Crypto to have this debate? Of course. Yeah. We're going to make right, it happen cool. then. So uh, I know everyone loves to be put on the spot with uh, some 2019 predictions, but uh, while you're here, would love to get your predictions before we wrap it up. Predictions on what? Yeah. I mean, like, what does 2019 have in store? What's the biggest theme? Uh, maybe what gets you most excited? So so uh, I'll do a couple of things. Uh I think we're going sideways for a while, a while. I don't know if that's a couple of months, the rest of the year, right? I, I just don't think that, uh, I don't think that we, you know, hit a bottom and just rock it up to 10 K let's say with Bitcoin, something like that. Right. So it's kind of more, we'll go sideways for a while, probably pretty choppy, et cetera. Uh, I think that, uh, we'll see more kind of quote unquote institutional investors, right? These are the endowments, pensions, sovereign wealth, or, uh, and foundations come in. Uh, one thing that I'm looking for, I don't know if it happens in 19 or 20, but it's going to happen probably next two years. What's the first government that comes out publicly and says they're buying Bitcoin. When that happens, it's game on, right? You got a scarce asset. These governments got a lot of money. All of a sudden, somebody comes out and says, we just bought $5, $10 billion worth of Bitcoin, and they bought up you know, 10% of the supply or something. I, I think that you're going to see the FOMO effect, and, and it's just going to be game on um, there. So that'll be interesting. 
Uh, I think a lot of the Wall Street banks um, will start really uh, getting serious about this over the next kind of 18 months. Um, they'll start launching their products. Uh, and and uh, another thing that a lot of people aren't talking about yet, but I'm, I'm very interested to see, and I'll caveat it with we're, we're investors. We have exposure to Coinbase. But take a company like a Coinbase, these crypto incumbents. Do they go public or do they tokenize their equity and, and actually go liquid on a, uh, on a crypto exchange? Brian Armstrong on stage one time said, uh, I think he was on stage, he said something to the effect of like, it'd be very on brand to tokenize the equity, right? And so all of a sudden, if you get some of these crypto incumbents that say, look, I'm sidestepping it. I'm not going to the public markets in the traditional sense. I'm going quote unquote public on a crypto exchange. Again, game on, because now all of a sudden, every company across the United States and elsewhere is going to start saying, what are the advantages? Why did they do that, right? Slack, or, or was it uh, no, Spotify direct listed? Now all of a sudden, you got Slack and a couple others considered doing it, right? The second that somebody's the first to do something like that that's innovative on the financing side, I think you get a lot of companies that start asking, why aren't we doing that? And so uh, that's another theme. Again, I don't think that happens this year, but probably next two years, we'll see a company do that that'll uh, catch uh, attention. Pomp, thanks so much for the time. I know we definitely got closer to an hour, so really appreciate Good. it. Listen, uh, but yeah. You, got, you guys got me fired up about Berninsky too. That's going to be gold for <laughs> totally. you. Hey, we are literally the debate podcast. Our whole audience, that's the only reason they care about us. So I, I love it. So, so what, do you, what do you guys normally do? You guys always have guests or, uh, I apologize, I've actually never listened. So send, actually, the, send me your best episode and, oh, I'll, yeah. and I'll listen to it uh, tonight or tomorrow. Okay. But uh, what do you guys, you two normally debate or you bring on a guest and then debate Bitcoin versus Ethereum? Uh, we actually really haven't really settled on one particular format. We typically bring on one guest and they lean one way or another. Uh, and then between me and Christian, one of us is on the defensive. Uh, so we, there have been some gang ups on, on the, uh, <laughs> on the pod for sure. Um, but yeah, it's, I would say it's pretty fair. We, we, we all, we only allow good faith debates We're we're very much with you where it. we are only here for good spirits and really trying to get down into the truth of things and so we only allow good faith debates on pov crypto yeah you, you guys should get a uh, john mcafee to get on and debate himself <laughs> i'm waiting for that to happen <laughs> all right you guys send me uh, your best episode i'll take a listen and uh, and then let me know whatever i can do to help when the episode comes out or whatever obviously i'll tweet it share it in the newsletter and stuff and try to uh, get some people to download it yeah i was gonna say while we have you uh still recording would love to uh you know shout yourself out where can people find you who do you want to hear from all that good stuff just follow me on Twitter. They probably already do. And for whoever's, whoever's under rock who doesn't know where to find you, where, where can they find you? Uh, on Twitter at uh, A Pompliano. Cool. Awesome. Pomp, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks again for getting on the pod, Pomp. Yeah, well, let's get you on for Chris Berniski. <laughs> All right, guys, you got it. Sounds good. Later. Gotta give a big hand to Anthony Pompliano for coming on the podcast. He is just full of good content. Uh, so and he he fires him quick. So if you guys had to to listen to that episode on on 0.75 speed, I don't, I don't blame you. Yeah, and I'm sure many of you guys listen to Pod's podcast, so you kind of know um, his style. But it is really incredible how well spoken Anthony is, and um, you know how much knowledge he has at the top of his head and all the stories. It was really again a pleasure getting to meet him. Remember, you can find Anthony on Twitter at a pompliano you can find the show at pov crypto pod you can find me at ck underscore snarks and if you guys want to help us uh, help out the show at c berniski and tell him to get on the podcast with anthony pompliano it's going to be a good time um otherwise you can find me at trustless state all right bye guys it's over